Yes, it is. Welcome back. Friday, April 22nd, as we head into hour two. We do so as we do every Friday, especially during this election year with George Kaloff. He is the president at Data Orbital Consulting and the managing partner of the Resolute Group. He is my polling, political and linguistic maven. George, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I got to I got to put that title on my business card. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, let's do a political. What was it? Polling, political and linguistic maven. Now, the word maven. Yeah, I don't know if you know. Do you use the word maven? It comes from Yiddish Hebrew, really, meaning one who understands. There you go. I'll yeah. take it. Yeah, I'll you're a maven. It. George Kaloff, Maven. Maven at Data Orbital and the Resolute Group. Yeah. Okay. George, uh, as we do with you, we do national, we do local uh, every Friday, politics, policy, and, uh, yeah, polling and language. Let me... um, let me save the uh, the national uh, for a moment. Let's do the, the, the local first. You're kind of doing an interesting public service this Tuesday, and I think it's part of a, a series you're doing. But tell, tell us about what you're doing this Tuesday. Sure, sure. I appreciate that, Seth. Um, this Tuesday, uh, the 26th at noon, uh, we're going to host a webinar where we're calling the State of the Race, where I'm going to go through and give my thoughts on legislative races across the state of Arizona, congressional races, and kind of give my crystal ball, Good. ball right? So if I'm going to predict the future, you know, who do I think is going to win where, why, primary in general, Democrat and Republican, okay? So if, if folks want to sign up, uh, they can go to dataorbital.com, dataorbital.com, and they could send us a, uh, they could send us a message and we'll get them, uh, we'll get them RSVP'd. And you could sign up for our email list because you mentioned we are trying to do this once a month and oh, kind good. of keep people informed with the with the latest happenings from a data perspective in Arizona. I don't want to do a uh, spoiler here, uh, but maybe give us uh, give us give give the audience the maybe a nugget from uh, one of the things you find interesting. You're going to share with them on Tuesday. You probably got 100 things, but maybe give us one. Sure, sure. I think from from a legislative perspective, uh, you know, coming from a state that is, you know, people, you know, we've talked a lot about the Seth. Is it getting swingier, Arizona? Is yeah. it not? Is it purple? Last year, in the last number of years, we've had, uh, the last two cycles, we've had six or seven really swing districts. Uh, and I'm going to sort of talk about how the state's now down to like three, right? Redistricting actually uh, really moved a bunch of stuff to the right, a bunch of stuff to the left. And we only really have two or three true swing districts. Um, in, in, in the entire state. So I'm going to unpack them and why and why I think that we actually have less swing districts, even though there's a lot of claim that people make to say that Arizona is a, uh, is a swing state. So is that's it healthier? That we're going to unpack it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I, I was just going to say, and, and the thing that's interesting is none of those swing districts exist, which I don't think will come to a surprise, and we'll unpack why on Tuesday. None of those swing districts exist in rural Arizona. They are all in Maricopa County. Okay, yeah, I'm going to tune in or at least have you talk to us next week for those of us that can't make it or for those in the audience that can't make it. I want to hear your analysis of that. But let me ask you this as as a theoretical question. Is it a positive or a negative? Is it a net good or a net bad that we have fewer swing districts than we used to? Yeah, so so that's a tough it's a tough question for me. Uh, to answer, here's why. I mean, look, it's it's good when there's healthy competition, and it's good when when folks are contending for for people's votes. Uh, but on the other hand, the way that the districts have been set up in Arizona, I, I don't look about where we're at today. I'm looking at where we're going to trend in six years, and okay. that was for any political observers out there, right? When we were tracking 
redistricting a decade ago, yeah. it kind of looked okay for yeah. Republicans at the time. But if you looked at the layer right beneath the surface, you could tell the trend lines were horrible in a number of different places. I actually think this year, while there were left wing districts, there are districts that are trending in rural Arizona, definitely for Republican. But frankly, some of them in suburban Maricopa, a bit more towards Democrats. Again, as we're seeing it today, obviously, at the very beginning of the decade. So, I mean, look, I, I don't love, you know, a plethora of, of swing districts just for swing districts sake. I right. want to make sure districts are fair. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I don't want to just make it swingy like how you're seeing, for example, the New York congressional map just got struck down by their court up there amazingly for a gerrymander where they were right. trying to eviscerate any Republicans being there. And so I want I want a map to be realistic. Um, and like I said, I think in Arizona, we're, we're close to that, but I, I want to kind of unpack the trend lines on Tuesday. Does a swing district, George, and if I'm getting into stuff you'd rather do on Tuesday, just mention it. I, I don't think I am, but you, you, you know the material. I don't. If, 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 if you have swing districts or the swing districts we're looking at now in Arizona, does it have a tendency um, or at least a conventional wisdom that that requires a swing district requires how shall we put this a softer kind of republican or a softer kind of democrat a more moderate i guess is the word of art a moderate republican or a moderate democrat or does it uh, necessitate uh you know clear bold colors and uh and and giving people something to charge a hill with yeah it, it, it necessitates uh intelligent boldness okay right? I, I, <laughs> I like that i'm writing that down it, intelligent it, boldness it, okay <laughs> It, it, it necessitates individuals that are bold. Uh, and again, you and I, I think in the, in the second segment, are going to unpack some of the national yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. And, and talk about someone bold like the governor of Florida, right. Ron DeSantis, right, and the stuff that he's done. But he's doing it in a very intentional and specific way. Florida is not some, even though it's super Republican, Florida is not some hard right state. I mean, it's not Wyoming, right? And, and there's a way for you to thread the needle. So specifically for Arizona. And it wasn't always super Republican not too long ago. Exactly. People may remember it's something actually, called Bush v. Gore. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's funny yeah. enough, it's been coming more Republican. I mean, people forget four years ago um, or, or two and a half years ago, Ron DeSantis won by a hair. Right. A hair. It was right. like 15,000 votes. Right. And, and now you wouldn't even recognize Florida today. And so, again, to parallel this to Arizona, uh, in swing districts, the Republican primary is not, and this is a thing that's going to be, I think, very interesting. And I'll unpack it a bit more on Tuesday, but I'll give another teaser today. Sure. It doesn't mean that it, it becomes swingy in the primary. Okay. That just means that there are uh, there's a different amalgamation, to use that word, a different combination of voters between the primary in general, where you're going to have to traverse, I think, a broader part of the spectrum. And so you're going to have maybe a bit more moderates, but some conservatives, and there's a lot more voters to contend with. So what that requires isn't wishy-washy. What that requires is directness and boldness and intelligence and thoughtfulness. People want to elect a statesman, even if you cannot necessarily, you don't necessarily agree 100% of the time. They want to understand your heart and your vision. And I've said the word vision a lot on this show and a lot in general because we need leaders, and leaders cast vision, and they are um, they're passionate about what they believe and they're they're bold in it and they're resolute, right? To go back to yeah. our firm's name, it's an intentional, which I've mentioned before. They're yeah. resolute in that boldness. Well, I'm going to tell you something I've kind of noticed this year in a way that, you know, maybe my first uh, 40 years in political life I was just ignorant of, or maybe it's new. I don't know. But I, for, you know, as you do, you do more of this than I do. But, you know, in an election year, I end up going to a lot of uh, political events. They tend to be uh, fundraiser types. Sometimes they're debates. But 
you know, the uh, the parlor or, or, or the home reception uh, fundraiser. And one of the things I've noticed this year, George, and I've been to a bunch from, you know, uh, with Republican candidates who, you know, I've always thought were a little bit more moderate than, you know, my taste, perhaps. And I've been where some are deemed to be exceptionally conservative or exceedingly conservative, given especially the perspective of a lot of the people there, the people in the room you don't think of as supporting these conservative Republicans necessarily. doesn't seem like they're kind of Republican, if you will. And what I've noticed in both cases, George, is when that candidate, be they a little more moderate than I like or be they a little more conservative than I think the audience likes, when they are smart and articulate and know their stuff really well, they have the room. That 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 predilection against moderacy or that predilection against uh, ardency, I suppose, if you will, that disappears. Going to your point that I think there's still at the end of the day, at least in Arizona, from what I've seen, no substitute for actually brains. That's what I found they yeah. like. It yeah. Sounds like yeah. that's what you're and, saying and honestly, a little bit too. A hundred percent, and and even to to sort of caveat the phrase earlier, the intelligent boldness, yeah, the authentically intelligent boldness, yeah. right? People yeah. that that folks can believe. If you're believable and you're smart, um, and you're bold in what you believe, and I've said this before, and I and I sincerely mean this, I be I feel like voters today are willing to forgive someone, yeah, uh, definitely forgive some personal dynamics and impropriety, and you hear a lot of people say, well, you know people like President Trump or whoever. I don't know if I love their yeah, yeah. X action, but man, all the stuff that they did was great. Right? People are willing to forgive some of that stuff and even forgive policy differences if they feel like you're authentic. You'll listen to them. You'll contend with them. You'll meet them where they are. I mean, you'll, and you'll treat them like a human being that's worth something. I mean, frankly, a lot of our elected folks, or I shouldn't say a lot, a number of our elected folks nationally, not to pick on Arizona, um, it's, it's almost like they look down upon you know, voters and, and, and look, the populist, what does populism mean? Not to, again, I know we're going down a little bit of a rabbit trail. It just no, means no. that you're of the people. So you don't have to be a populist, but you have to be of the people. I mean, we have kind of missed that, right, Seth? I mean, you know, I think so. And, and by the way, there's no such thing as a rabbit hole here. I think it's just, you know, this is the stuff we need to define, George, because I think we assume too much. And by the way, what a great segue to Ron DeSantis, because I think he's yeah. an exemplar of that. If If you'll allow me the commercial break, I'll be right back. We'll pick up on the Ron DeSantis point to this. I'm Seth. He's George Kaloff. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. As we do every Friday, we check in with George Kaloff from Data Orbital, where he is president and the managing partner of the Resolute Group. He is my, how do we have it, my polling political and linguistic maven. Uh, George, we were talking about, and I've made, I, I, I put it this way, that with candidates running, there's no substitute for brains and, yes, obviously, sincerity. Uh, and we were talking about that in the context of swing districts here in Arizona, particularly at the state legislative uh, level. But look at, let's, let's, let's go to Florida. Uh, let's go to Florida for a moment because I think this is the effect uh, best shown by of any politician in America, Ron DeSantis. As I put it earlier, this is a man who goes out and confronts the issues. A lot of Republicans, quite frankly, are hesitant to confront, but he does it with really high intelligence and knowledge of the issue. He does not go in half-baked. He goes in probably knowing more about it than his opponents and certainly a lot more about it than the media that gives him a hard time. I think this matters. Talk to me about DeSantis, 
his magic, but also talk to me about the interesting dynamics of the fight between DeSantis and Disney, the sure. the, the double D's here. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I was going to use Disney as the example. Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're looking at a governor that um, is in the media a lot and there's a lot of show. Right. But oftentimes when there's a lot of show, there's not substance and there could not be we could not be farther from the truth here. So so Governor DeSantis convinced a legislature. Uh, I don't know 100 percent if it was a bipartisan vote, but it was by wide margin. A legislature that candidly has has benefited from millions of dollars of Disney contributions and employee Disney contributions and all that stuff to vote to remove the exemption that very few companies uh, afford uh, an exemption, frankly, that is going to lose and cost Disney millions of dollars, all because Disney went to war with parents and DeSantis. And I'll tell you this, and, and this is something I, we, I talk a lot about, that DeSantis is willing to stand up to a corporation, no matter how popular, and say, no, I'm going to stand with parents. I'm going to stand with my citizens. I'm going to stand with Floridians against you. And not just did it for a day or two, weeks on end, and then hit them where they hurt. Yeah, double down, weeks on end, and then almost- double down. Yeah, right unblemished and their stock is down. I mean, I saw, I saw a note earlier that, that their stock is down, you know, especially depending, you know, compared to their sector, their stock is down like 25, 30%. I mean, it is costing them money. Uh, and, and DeSantis is, has, has not just not spent political capital. He has gained it yeah. based on the way that he has conducted himself. That's it, right. is a, it is a true lesson in how to pick a fight with a powerful opponent, do it well and not back down. You know, I was um, this this takes us back. Maybe this will be a theme for you and I the rest of our conversing lives, George, which I hope is is forever. But 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 it's the theme, the theme of the issue of the culture. Um, When you think about it, I was talking about this in my monologue today. When you think about who the media and the left hate the most, go after hammer and tongs the hardest uh, in 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 the Republican Party, you know, the three names I think of the people who suffered the hardest of slings and arrows from the media and the left were Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, each of whom were cultural warriors. And it dawns on me that the left understands the stakes of the culture and understands what they're dealing with when they find, um, I don't know, a brick wall that stands in front of their in front of their wrecking ball, I suppose. And they try and destroy that brick wall like none other. DeSantis is their number one enemy, maybe more so than Donald Trump. Yes. Ronald Reagan Why? was a much because. bigger enemy to them than George H.W. Bush. Of course. Yeah. Of course, right? And why DeSantis more than Trump? Because there's not an easy – you can't be like, oh, the mean tweets. You can't go to some of these easy targets that, again, I know people spend a lot of time debating. With DeSantis, you get the toughness. You get the, you get the resolve. You get the iron spine. You get the, you know, you get the articulate. You get the smart. He's got a team around him, and frankly, he's letting people know about it. That's the other thing, too, right? The saying, the tree falls in the forest, yep. no one there is to hear it. You know, does it make a noise? Mm-hmm. Like, no, this guy's making noise because yep. he's ensuring people are hearing it. Yep. And it, frankly, it is encouraging, and this is the thing that I'm looking for. And I keep telling you know, people, like, well, what, you know, George, this, there's a difficult season in politics right now in our nation. What's going to get us out of it? And I always tell them, it's going to take us a leader mm-hmm. who casts a vision for the future mm-hmm. and who leads by example and who makes people want to follow them. And I'm telling you, so far, DeSantis is doing that from his perch as governor in a very, very interesting way. He is someone that obviously we're going to have to continue watching uh, as as we get past 2022 to see what does he do in 2023? Does he make a move for a presidency? Does he make a move to, to, to look to lead the party? How does that play into all of these other dynamics? 
He is a leader that people want to follow, and it is affecting what we're doing in other states in a tremendously positive way for those of us that believe what we believe on these cultural stands. You know, that's right, George, and I, I, I agree with that analysis totally, and there's another part to it, which maybe is something we can think about, too, for future conversations or any collaborations that we engage in, and it's and it's this. You don't hear a word, uh, this word, this phrase much anymore, but there used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago, political scientists loved to talk about consensus candidates or candidates and elected leaders who could form a new consensus. Boy, they loved writing about forming and forging a new consensus. You probably remember that. You don't hear much about that anymore. And I think it's because maybe, maybe, maybe that died after Ronald Reagan. But <clears throat> with Ronald Reagan, you got a tremendous number of Democrats coming on board to the Republican Party. I think we lost a lot of them because they weren't you know, we didn't sustain the Reaganism of the Republican Party. You got some of it with Donald Trump. I think that hit the brakes like Fred Flintstone because of 2020's election itself. But we are Republicans have been occasionally on the verge of creating a new consensus, which I think in my own sense, George, is a much better way for us to think and talk and appeal than this notion of permanent political, cultural, soft civil war. Honestly, I think that's the way you get through this. Maybe I'm just being way too romantic about the possibility of politics, but it will take leaders that do that if we want to avoid further civil war. A hundred percent. And and frankly, Seth, and I'm going <laughs> to be very blunt in sort of this, this analysis of the consensus, the Republican Party can become the party of the people, the party that casts vision, the party of the immigrant, the party of the worker, the party of, of, of values and forward looking. And the Democrats can become the party of the ivory tower. Yep. And 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 and, and those that are uh, insular and don't represent the majority of Americans. That is the path that we're going down yep. if, if we as Republicans continue, can continue marching down and casting that vision. And frankly, if the Democrats keep doing the work for us, which is doubling down on some of the most ridiculous things like this Disney battle mm -hmm. with someone like DeSantis, uh, that's where we're going to end up. And that consensus, the ivory tower versus the people, that is a big deal. And frankly, that was the way that the Democrats painted yep. the Republicans yep. in the 90s post-Reagan and yep. in the 2000s under Bush. Exactly. We were the ivory tower elite. Right. And that's not true. They're the ivory tower elite. We're the party of the people. I would like next week to talk to you more on that very point. I'll have Bill write it down. I'm going to write it down. And if you can remember, I want to pick up on that very point and tie it to the phrase you used. We, I wanted to delve in more with you, too. We'll save it for next week. Populism. George Kaloff, you are a uh, treasure. Thank you so much. My political polling and linguistic maven. I appreciate you so much, sir. Thanks, Seth. Always good to chat. You betcha. Uh, and by the way, folks, if you want to go to that webinar he's doing, again, go to David, Data Orbital Consulting, Data Orbital. I'm Seth. He's George. Your call, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. There's a bunch I want to do, but... Um, I, this email, you know, this, you know, I assume, I presume when someone calls or emails me that more than that person has that question or the question might have dawned on them. So that's why I'll answer uh, individual calls the way I do broadly or individual emails if I can. Uh, Thomas wrote to us uh, the title of his, uh, the subject line of his email was First Amendment. Seth, you mentioned something that confuses me and I've been pondering. 
First Amendment doesn't apply to private companies in the context of Obama's speech at Stanford. We were talking about Obama's speech on disinformation at uh, at Stanford yesterday, and uh, we were making the distinction that, you know, everyone would make, which is free speech is a part of the First Amendment. The First Amendment really only attaches to governmental entities. It doesn't attach to private uh, private entities. They can have an ethos or an ethic of free speech, but it's not enforceable through through the First Amendment, which only applies to to public uh, governmental entities. Sorry, governmental entities. Anyway, so he says, my question, if a cafe or a private business doesn't want a person of you know, uh, doesn't want a racial minority to sit at their lunch counter, should they be able to claim what Google, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook claims when they defend their right to censor speech? Are the two principles related? It's such an important question, and usually it comes to us this way. It comes to us, well, you know, how can you apply the First Amendment to non-governmental institutions? How can you apply uh, what had only been true of governments or laws only true of governments to private interests or private corporations? This was the very heart of the debate of, uh, uh, in 1964 over the 1964 Civil Rights Act. This was the heart of it. There were two types of opponents to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, Southern Democrats and one or two libertarian Republicans. The Southern Democrats were against it, and boy, they had famous names, names like Gore, names like Sam Irvin, who was the hero of Watergate. Uh, anyway, P, uh, the senator who Bill Clinton called his his uh, his his mentor, Fulbright, um, of which there are still scholarships named after. Um, the, the, those Democrats were actually racists and they were against the 1964 Civil Rights Act because of the liberties it would give to all in consonance with the Declaration of Independence and the 14th Amendment. Then there was the libertarian, the one or two libertarian Republicans, most prominent of whom was Barry Goldwater, who opposed the Civil Rights Act not on the grounds the Southern Democrats did. Not because of bigotry, not because of opposition to equality. After all, this man, Barry Goldwater, you know, he helped found the NAACP in Arizona. He desegregated Sky Harbor. Uh, this man didn't, you know, this, this man was the beau ideal of the anti-racist. But he was against the 64 Act because it would apply an incursion into private industry, telling them who they had to and who they, you know, who they had to serve, who they had to host, who they had to accommodate. It's called public accommodations law. That was his objection. And that objection transferred into the other concern, which was we would start implementing and require a quota system to, to, to become compliant with the civil rights law. That was why Barry Goldwater was opposed to it. And the Democrats got away with it because it was signed into law by a Democratic president named Lyndon Johnson, and it was weaponized against Barry Goldwater while the Democrats did their level best to keep those Southern Democrats quiet on the 64 Civil Rights Act. In fact, interesting bit of history, um, the Republican Party was the party for African Americans, and even up until 1960, 
Richard Nixon got something like 30 plus percent of the African-American vote. Because of Goldwater's position, libertarian position in 1964 and the way it was weaponized against him, it's never really been above, what, 10 or 11 percent at best since then. I didn't fully answer the question, Tom, about how it can be done. I'll tell you that and how on the other side of the break. As we go to break, let me put in a word for balance of nature. They're fruits and veggies, which I take every single day to boost my immunity and keep me healthy. I haven't been sick since I've been taking it. It's going about three years. I used to get sick several times a year. Serving 10 servings, 10 servings of fruits and vegetable in a single daily serving of Balance of Nature. Go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. What if you could do financially well by doing good for others? What if you could invest in a secure and collateralized portfolio, earn exceptional fixed returns, and actually help other people? Help other people do what? Help other people get out of their student loan debt. That's the business why refi is in, and they do a great job for students with private student loan debt that they can't get out of. They even will help them get their FICO scores back, but they have a great investment opportunity where you can help these students or former students while making money yourself. I take these kinds of things, investment opportunities, really seriously, so I want to tell you I have spent some time with the folks at Y-Refi. They are good people. They're locally based. You can visit them yourself if you do. They're in Scottsdale. They won't uh, give you any kind of hard pitch. They're excited to tell you about what they're doing. I think it's excited. I think it's actually revolutionary. Check them out. Go to invest, uh, excuse me, investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y dot com. Investrefi.com. They're in the business of helping people that others won't, and you can be too. Investrefi.com. Dot com or give them a call at 855-316-3087. Great returns for investors who are involved in this. Okay, 602-508-0960 is uh, our number here. Uh, they won't leave Florida alone. They will not leave Florida alone. Florida's Department of Education just went uh, went through its math textbooks um, that uh, that were being uh, that were approved and being used in their uh, public schools, uh, obviously, in Florida. Washington Post has a big story on how the Florida uh, government, the Ron DeSantis administration, is now attacking math. Now attacking math by eliminating, I don't know how many textbooks in, in math they got rid of. I think it had it, it depended on the grade, uh, and I think when it well, yeah, I can tell you actually if you'll bear with me just half a moment. I did pull this up, uh, going by the um, by the Florida Department of Education's press release. Uh, they eliminated uh, seventy eight of the one hundred and thirty two textbooks that are being used for math. That's the answer, and then it had depending on what grade. Why did they do this? Why did they, you think, obviously, obviously, the narrative is that the Republicans in Florida are against math. That's obviously the narrative. It's also obviously untrue. It's because these textbooks, you know, I was watching a debate um, on education policy in America, 
I forget who the two liberals were. I remember the two conservatives were, well, two of my good friends, our former superintendent here, Lisa Graham Keegan, and former education secretary, Bill Bennett. They were on one side. I forget who was on the other. But I remember Bill was making the point when asked about how why, why, why we are so low in, score, in our scoring on math when it comes to measuring against other countries. And he said, because in other countries they teach math, and in this country we teach how we feel about math. And he's right, and that's what these Florida textbooks were doing, of course, with a substantial racial angle. What? Me? Racist? More than two million people have tested their racial prejudice using this textbook on math. Has to be about you cannot just teach math anymore. You have to make it about race. You have to apply critical race theory to mathematics. Evidently, evidently, we ought to do a survey of our math textbooks in Arizona. We, you know, we have been. This is the thing. Here it is again, folks. Who would have thought math books? In the same way, who would have thought they were teaching adult sexually themed issues to five-year-olds? Who would have thought that you would have a nursery school book that goes into themes that border on child pornography or lots of them? Who would have thought this stuff? Well, we didn't until, you know, it was brought to our attention in the in the context of uh, and in the crucible of a political campaign in Virginia. I don't think most of us did know this was going on. It was a huge wake up call about a year ago and we woke up and we woke up fast we knew it was going on. We, we, we knew the kind of neo-Marxist and, and old traditional Marxism that was going on in our college campuses and, you know, the redefinitions of men and boys and girls and women there and, you know, the Marxist ideologies they were preaching there. It just never dawned on us it would be in the fifth, fourth, third, second, first kindergarten and pre-K grades. Never dawned on us. As evidently until recently, it dawned on them in Florida. Until recently, would it dawn on us that math is also subject to critical nonsense theories, critical race theory or any kind of gender gender theory? You know, do you realize that one of the Washington Post criticisms – you don't realize – one of the Washington Post criticisms of the elimination of these math books in Florida – one of the criticisms uh, was that it got rid of the five competencies known from social and emotional learning in studying math. Do you guys understand how this – you just throw words together and it's supposed to sound intellectual, advanced, perhaps even pedagogically avant-garde. It takes away the social-emotional elimination, uh, social emotional learning of the five competencies that are needed for learning math. You want to know what those five competencies are? You want to know what the five competencies are? Self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, relationship skills, and social awareness. Is that what you want your kids learning in fourth-grade math or eighth-grade math or any class of math? Shouldn't the kids be self-management, self-awareness, social awareness, relationship skills, responsible decision? When did that become the job of the fourth-grade math teacher? Did anyone over the age of – I don't know. I was going to say 50. Let's, let's be liberal about it. Did anyone over the age of 35 or 30 even, if I'm pushing it just a hair, have to learn math in the context of self-management, self-awareness, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making? You know what? 
in Florida, in Florida, 34% of eighth graders can't do any math. They are functionally math illiterate. 34% of Floridans, of eighth grade Floridians, math illiterate. It's about the same number at the eighth, at the, um, at the fourth grade. Eighth and fourth graders, about 30 to 35% math illiterate. How about we just go back to teaching math? You can look at the charts, by the way. You can look at these National Assessment of Educational Progress Studies, known as the Nation's Report Card. You can look at these trend lines and see that we used to be doing a lot better with math and English and reading and learning. On all these things, we used to be doing a lot better. You ever ask yourself why 1964 was the high water mark for SATs and why it's been downhill and flat ever since? Do you think we had it all wrong back then? Think we had it all wrong in 1994 or even 2004? How about we start teaching math again and not self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, relationship skills, and social awareness? Because that's kind of what you expect parents to do. I guess if you get rid of the family, I guess if you eliminate the family, disrupt the family – you are supposed to get those things in school. Well, guess what? We haven't done the first thing yet. So let's let schools be schools. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the Midas Gold Group. First, we were told that spending trillions on COVID relief and blue state bailouts would not generate inflation. Then we were told that inflation would be transitory. One company got it right from the beginning. They are my personal precious metal dealers. They are the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group. As Washington politicians push the largest budget in American history and the Fed continues to pump money into the system, what happens next? What will China do with their U.S. Treasury holdings as the value is whipped away amid the Biden inflation? Midas Gold Group will give you the latest inflation projections. Ask them for their free guide to owning physical gold in your IRA. No pressure at all. Free. Midas Gold Group, 480-360-3000. Don't deal with questionable gold salesmen and avoid mail-order nightmares. Man, night, not that. Nightmares. <laughs> Sorry about that. Deal with the knowledgeable and reputable company, Seb Gorka. I and thousands of you already deal with Midas Gold Group, 480-360-3000 or MidasGoldGroup.com. That's how you can tell the difference between a live read and a recorded commercial, right? We go right to it. You know, I wanted to do something that ties back to my monologue. I don't know if we'll have enough time to do it about how we're always at the eve of destruction and how it really started with Barry Maguire's song and then moved to Earth Day and the population bomb. 18 examples of the spectacularly wrong predictions made in 1970 when Earth Day began. You can get it at AEI.org, the American Enterprise Institute. Here's a few. Harvard biologist George Wald estimated that, quote, civilization will end within 15 to 30 years by 1985 or 2000 unless immediate action is taken against the problems facing mankind, close quote. A Harvard biologist predicted the end of civilization within 30 to 15 to 30 years. Here's another one. Uh, from Washington University biologist Barry Commoner, who I believe ran on a green ticket of some kind or other for president. Quote, 
We are in an environmental crisis that threatens the survival of this nation and of the world as a suitable place of human habitation. Three, the day after the first Earth Day, the New York Times editorial page warned, quote, man must stop pollution and conserve his resources, not merely to enhance existence, but to save the race from the intolerable deterioration and extinction. Paul Ehrlich, quote, population will inevitably and completely outstrip whatever small increases in food supplies we make. Could go on and on and on. These are the experts. This is what you get when you listen to the experts. You know what they're worth? You know what they're worth? Honest to God. What John Nance Gardner once said the vice presidency was worth. A warm bucket of spit. I'm Seth Leibson, 602 508 We'll be right back. 